Hello, sports fans, and welcome to Let Me Speak, the show that shares sports' biggest headlines explained, uninterrupted, and maybe a little audacious. I'm Joe Braverman, and today's topics we'll be discussing are full game analysis from how the Bengals and the Rams made it to Super Bowl 56, plus who has the advantage in an extremely tight NBA Eastern Conference, and Entering the NHL All-Star break, the biggest surprises and disappointments in the regular season so far. It's episode 59 of Let Me Speak, and it starts right now. How's it going, everyone? Here on Thursday, February 3rd, 2022, episode number 59 coming at you of Let Me Speak. Can't believe it's been 59 episodes. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Whether you're a longtime follower or a new listener, I appreciate you taking some time out of your day to take a listen. Up here in the Swamp Scott, Massachusetts area, wow. <laughs> and I mean, wow. A two foot blizzard. Spending days out there shoveling the driveways, the sidewalks. And then we got an ice storm coming up, more so like sleet, sort of. It, it really depends on the, the line of where you are in Massachusetts. So at least in this area, we're going to get mostly sleet. You know, it'll be like a rain, sleet, snow. Uh, some areas might get more snow. Some areas might get more rain. But just wherever you are, hope you're staying safe and it was a good thing that Massachusetts did get a blizzard because then they were stuck inside to watch an incredible day of football with the AFC and the NFC championship and now we know the Super Bowl is set in Los Angeles Cincinnati Bengals Los Angeles Rams a week from Sunday now before we get into the games let's just talk about this postseason what a postseason it has been maybe one of the best in recent memory, if I got to be honest. Teams extremely close, and I feel like it's appropriate because there's been so much parity in the NFL this year that you can't pick out one true contender. I mean, who would have thought you would have expected the Bengals and the Rams, you know, preseason to be in the Super Bowl? Never would have thought that. But how did they get here? Let's break it down, starting with the AFC Championship. And honestly, I was watching that first half of the AFC Championship game against in uh, Kansas City and Cincy, and this was going to be a runaway. It should have been a runaway until it wasn't, and Cincinnati was able to come back from a 21-3 deficit. They win it 27-24. Once again, it's Evan McPherson on uh, the game-winning kick. But before we get into the Bengals side of things, I want to talk about the Chiefs side of things because, honestly, to me, this was more about – Kansas City losing than it was Cincinnati winning, I think. Because, you know, like I just said, they led 21-3 at one point, and they lost 27-24. And it's not just that they blew it, but it's a tale of two halves. I mean, first three drives were all touchdowns in the first half. Three touchdowns, you're up 21-3. to You go to the second half, you only muster three points. Only three points, and you had to get it at the end of regulation just to get it to overtime. And I really put that on Patrick Mahomes in that offense. I mean, he was a totally different player in that second half. You know, after the three touchdowns on the three first three drives, you get one field goal and two picks in the next seven drives. Next seven, including overtime. So I don't know what happened with Mahomes if he just couldn't adjust to what Cincinnati brought in the second half or if they were getting too cocky for their own good because that's what I think it was more so with Andy Reid and the coaching staff I mean look at the play at the end of the first half I mean it was super simple you get points you make it 24 to 3 okay 24 to 3 or uh I should correct myself 21 to 10 and 24 to 10 are two completely different things okay Going for the touchdown, I think, was a really bad move by Andy Reid. And when you watch from, you know, NFL films, 
you got Mahomes going over to the coaching staff saying, one more, I got this, I got this. And there's like five seconds on the clock. And the play call by Mahomes is just to throw it to the outside and let Tyreek Hill try and make a play. I mean, in that kind of instance, if you got five seconds left, it's got to be a quick play into the end zone. You get it, it's a touchdown. You don't, you got to hope it's out of bounds so you at least get points on the board. So not a good decision right there. It's got to be a quick end zone shot from the one-yard line. That just, it didn't make sense to me. And I, what people didn't realize until later on is that that turned the game around, okay? No one even knew it until later on that that was the turning point for Cincinnati. They saw that deficit at halftime, 21 to 10. They thought, that is manageable. We can do it because they are a team filled with confidence. And meanwhile, the Chiefs, three for five in the red zone, two for four in goal-to-go situations, okay? So that's what I see from this Chiefs team is that they just got too cocky for their own good. They got too confident saying 21-3, to we got this, especially against this Cincinnati team, against this Bengals team who's so young and inexperienced just like us. But if you're going on the history of what Kansas City has done, They've hosted the AFC Championship four straight times. They're two and two. They only have one Super Bowl to their name. Okay, so let's let's pump the brakes on Mahomes being an all-time great just yet or the Chiefs being the, the new dynasty or whatever. Because, yeah, you could say they're the new New England Patriots. They're the New England Patriots of this generation with the amount of success that they've had, multiple championship runs. But they've only got one ring, one ring to their finger. So let's just, let's hit the pause button. Let's put our foot on the brake and let's slow down the conversation about that. Because when they win a second Super Bowl, then we can lighten it up again. But that was just a bad performance by Kansas City with the tale of two halves. But Obviously, it's not all about how Kansas City lost. Let's talk about Cincinnati. I mean, who would have thought that this Bengals team, this Bengals team would make the Super Bowl, okay? Look at the history that they've had. Last year, they were 4-11-1, okay? Joe Burrow tore his ACL seven games into his rookie year, seven or eight games. They hadn't won a playoff game since Boomer Esiason in the late 80s. And now they've won three straight to go to the Super Bowl. I mean, it was crazy to think if you look at the odds projections, I think this team was at like 500 to one at one point. Okay. I probably listed the Cincinnati team as maybe the eighth or ninth best team possibly. And that's just generous with all the teams that stacked up in there. But this is just all about a young squad oozing with confidence. Okay absolutely oozing with confidence and that goes all the way to head coach Zach Taylor okay and it trickles down to all of those players but on the field Cincinnati defense did a great job at bending but not breaking we've seen that kind of strategy for years and years Zach Taylor and company changing the game plan and rather rushing three guys and dropping eight into coverage was very very smart and then some late Adjustments in the second half, limiting the amount of blitzes that they were bringing and just bringing everyone back. I mean, registering four second half sacks. Sam Hubbard played great in that fourth quarter. Some late games pressure, forcing the fumbles, getting a couple sacks on Mahomes. Props to that defense. But of course, Evan McPherson, as I mentioned, I think he's going to be this year's, this generation's Adam Vinatieri because not only is he confident, but he knows how to make the clutch kicks. I mean, he's 12 for 12 on field goals this postseason, back-to-back game winners. And compare that to the regular season, he only missed it five times. He was 28 of 33. And the fact that this guy is so confident, you know, you look at the game against Tennessee a week ago saying, I got this kick, I got this. I guarantee you he said the same thing uh, heading into the overtime kick to win the game. This guy is as confident as any kicker that I've seen out there. He knows he's going to make it. You know, I I think he's going to be this generation's Adam Vinatieri. When you're looking for clutch kicks, game-winning kicks, this is going to be the number one guy you turn to, no matter 
who's on the field, no matter who you're up against. But of course, you cannot talk about the Bengals without Joe Burrow, okay? He ultimately, you know, the defense played great, but this was all about Burrow, okay? If he isn't already a superstar, this game has changed that. He's going to be one of the top five, maybe, you know, maybe top five, definitely top 10 quarterbacks for years and years to come now that we're seeing guys like Brady and Roethlisberger, all these guys sort of uh, retire and head into the sunset. But Joe Burrow, what he did in this game, uh, unreal. 23 for 38, 250 yards, two touchdowns and a pick. And when you watch that fourth quarter, the way he escaped pressure from that Chiefs defensive line, escaping sacks and running for those first downs, unreal. Unreal. And I know everyone wants to make the comparison to Tom Brady. And I would, uh, I would pump the brakes on that one, but with what I've seen, you know, the way, the way he's able to escape pressure sort of basically put the team on his back, especially when he's got great guys in the uh, air attack, like Higgins and Boyd and Uzama, and especially Jamar chase. He's taken advantage of all those weapons he's got around him and the throws he's making the way he's able to scramble, you know, un- unreal. I just, I'm, sometimes I'm just speechless about Joe Burrow. This is a guy who performs well in big time games. You got to go all the way back to LSU when they had that championship run. This guy has tons of confidence, tons of confidence. This whole team has confidence, and that's what's got them into the Super Bowl. You know, they're a team that has said, you know, everyone else doubts us except for us, the guys in this locker room. That's what I see with this Cincinnati team. So props to the Bengals for making it to the uh, Super Bowl for the first time since the late 80s. And we know that it's not going to be an easy task because the team they got to play in the Super Bowl is going to play in their own stadium after winning the NFC Championship game in their own stadium. That's right. The Rams, another team that came back from down late, down 17-7, and now they get to host the big game in their own stadium. Now, I will not say this was the cleanest game. It was not the cleanest. A lot of poor decisions by both coaching staffs. Execution probably could have been better. And obviously not the cleanest game from the quarterback standpoint. Looking at some of the numbers, Jimmy Garoppolo, 16-30, 232, two touchdowns and a pick. Matt Stafford, 31 for 45, 337, two touchdowns and a pick. But some of the passes that we saw, maybe not the cleanest, maybe not the most well-executed. But I think, you know, San Francisco, again, similar to Kansas City, I feel like they lost this game because I felt like they had to do way, way much more. You know, I thought the defensive line had to make much more of an impact, especially in that fourth quarter. The running game, the running game needed to do way more than they did. They only had 50 total rush yards, okay? Debo Samuel and Elijah Mitchell combined for 18 carries and 46 yards combined. And I feel like Kyle Shanahan, no matter how bad they were struggling in the running game, he should have just kept going with the calls. He should have kept making more calls for those guys because it only takes one. And I know props is to the Rams defensive line, you know, Donald and Miller, just to name a few, but Debo Samuel is a once in a, once in a generation kind of player, the way he's able to run and catch the ball you got to get him more involved in those kind of run games. And I know he had a rushing touchdown, but you had to use him more. You had to use Elijah Mitchell more. So I look at Kyle Shanahan on that one. And I know everyone's talking about the Jaquiski Tart should have had interception. It wasn't the ultimate game changer because you have to look at the situation. It was just past the 10-minute mark in the fourth. If he had caught that ball, it would have been around their own 40-yard line. And no one would have known if Jimmy Garoppolo was going to be able to lead his team down the field, you know, we don't know that. So I'm not going to say that if Tart made that interception, the 49ers would be in the Super Bowl. I'm not going to say that at all. So I, I take some, I, I probably put about 10% of it on that interception, but I'm not going to put the whole game on that one play right there. And yes, it was really, really easy. Stafford. I don't know where he was throwing the ball. There was no one around Tart to make that play, but I'm not putting it all on him because the 49ers could have done so much more rather than just relying on that pick. 
But for the Rams, I got to tell you, it is getting harder and harder to stop that offense. More so Cooper Cup and Odell Beckham Jr. These guys had an unreal game. Cooper Cup, still to me, I've said Devontae Adams for a long time about being the best wide receiver. I think Cooper Cup now has overtaken that. I think he's the best. 11 catches, buck 42 yards, two touchdowns. And then you complement that with OBJ, nine receptions, 113 yards. We're finally rediscovering what made OBJ a superstar and sort of a household name that everyone wanted because of the the game that he put up. I got to say in that fourth quarter, great pass rush from uh, the usual suspects for the Rams. Aaron Donald making a superstar play on that game-clinching interception, getting the pressure on Garoppolo, basically throwing the ball up in the air for an easy interception. I said Aaron Donald was waiting to break out, and that was his breakout play, kind of reminding everyone, I'm one of the top defensive linemen that this game has. So props to Donald on that. But then, of course, you got to talk about Matthew Stafford. I mean, this was a guy who I think was held down by Detroit for so long. And now when you get the weapons around him, you give him a defense, you give him pass catching abilities, you give him a run game, look at what he's doing. Okay. Now he does make still, he still makes those mistakes, but when he doesn't make those mistakes, this offense entirely is dangerous, very, very dangerous. And ultimately I think if the Rams do win the Super Bowl, I think Stafford gets himself into the hall of fame. That's what I think. I think maybe not definite, but you got to at least get him into a consideration with some of the things he's been able to do, not only just in Detroit, but for this year for LA. I'm Stafford's sort of a feel good for me. This is a guy who spent 13 years in the league, no playoff wins up until this year. He goes to a winning squad, Sean McVay, and everyone helps him to be a winner. And he is a winner. The playoff demons, you know, he's a great quarterback now. Okay. Whatever the discussion was, whether it was, you know, Detroit or all that Stafford is a great quarterback and one of the best we've seen in recent memory. So that's where I give Matthew Stafford. And it's just been fun to sort of sit back, watch these games all over again and get ready for the Super Bowl and next Sunday. So I send my congratulations to the Cincinnati Bengals and the LA Rams for getting back to the Super Bowl. Here's now to the NBA. I know we've talked a lot of football over the last couple of weeks, but the NBA is getting just as exciting. I mean, we're a week away from the trade deadline, two weeks away from the all-star break, and it is tight. I got to tell you right now, it is tight, tight, tight. We got nine teams in the Eastern Conference, all within six games of each other. That is unreal. That's similar to the NFL, you know, in the AFC with all those teams close enough to each other. I mean, when you look at the Western Conference, it's basically a runaway. you got the Suns, the Warriors, the Grizzlies, and then everyone else after that. Everyone's jumbled up. They're all back like 15 or 16 games, something like that. But the East, the East is tight. And you would honestly make a case for all nine of these teams to possibly get themselves in the top of the conference. When you look at the standings right now, not in any particular order, but you got the Bulls, 76ers, the Heat, the Cavs, the Bucks, the Nets, the Hornets, Raptors, and the Celtics all within striking distance, okay? I think the, the Celtics, who are in the uh, ninth spot right now, they're only five and a half back, you know? So props to all of these teams for really sticking around. And I got to give major props to uh, Chicago and Miami, the top two teams in the East right now, because of all the injuries and all the missing pieces that they have, you know, starting with Chicago, who's on top of the East, you know, no Lonzo ball, no Alex Caruso, no Derek Jones jr. Okay. And look at what they're still doing. They're top 10 in scoring their second in field goal percentage. And they're the top team in three point shooting. So props to Chicago for that one. I thought this was going to be a good team, you know, getting themselves into the playoffs, you know, challenging for maybe like a mid pack, like a five or six, something like that, I never would have thought, never would have thought they'd be at the top of the Eastern Conference right now. 
And I got to give all the credit to DeMar DeRozan because he's reminding us who the heck he is. Multiple-time All-Star, him and Zach Levine, creating one of the best one-two punches in the league right now. I think they're both averaging around 26 points per game. If you got those two guys perform the way they are, it's unreal. But it's more about DeRozan for me, for the Bulls. I mean, he's sixth in the league right now in points per game. He's averaging 26 and a half. And I looked this up really quickly. The most points he's averaged in a season is 27.3. That was in 2017 with uh, the Raptors, only a few years before he got traded. And now this is the second most at 26 and a half that he's averaged so far in his career. So it's a career resurgence for DeRozan that's really helping them out. And when this team does get healthy, they're going to be dangerous, you know, because DeRozan's still healthy and Levine is still healthy. But all the pieces around them, you know, I love Lonzo, the way he sort of incorporated himself as the point guard. Alex Caruso with the energy off the bench. Once they come back, they're going to be extra, extra dangerous. But for right now, I give total props to Chicago for what they've been able to do with all of the injuries that they've had. And same to Miami, too. I was sort of in the same boat as Miami, you know, challenging for, you know, maybe the top of the East, like a 3-4 kind of thing. Not to be second in the conference. I mean, look at all the pieces that they've been out with. Kyle Lowry's been out for personal reasons. Bam Adebayo just came back from a wrist injury, or I think it was thumb injury or something like that. Uh, Markeith Morris has been out since that altercation with Nikola Jokic, and then he got placed in the COVID protocols. And then P.J. Tucker, one of their other acquisitions, has been day-to-day. Now, they have lost three straight to Toronto twice and then to Boston. But I think the X factor for their success has been the shooting off the bench, okay? They're the second-best three-point shooting team in the NBA, but you have to look at the pieces that are around them, okay? Everyone knows about Tyler Hero and how well he does. 20 points averaging off the bench. But also off the bench, you got Max Struess, Caleb Martin, and Gabe Vincent. Those four guys are averaging over 37% from three-point land. So that's been the key, is when you got great shooting, you kind of forget about all these other pieces. It's almost like Eric Spolstra can plug in two different game plans when you go from starting lineup to reserves. You know, when you got a guy like Jimmy Butler and Kyle Lowry and Bam Adebayo somewhere in there, you don't have to rely on the three-pointer so much. You kind of just tell Duncan Robinson, just stay behind the arc. Don't worry about it. We're going to drive to the basket, and if you're there, just shoot it. So I think Miami has all the pieces working well right now. And, you know, this is what I see with with the Bulls and the Heat, that if they're winning games without – Uh, some of their top players, if some of their top players are out with injuries and they're still winning these games, then that's even more impressive than being in top of the conference. So I am a big fan. You know, I'm personally rooting for the Bulls and the Heat to continue that success just because no one expected it. No one expected them to be at the top of the conference. But then sneaking in there, as always, is Philly. Philadelphia is finally learning to play without Ben Simmons, which, by the way, is still a joke of a situation going on. Ben Simmons does not deserve to be held out the way he is in Philadelphia. But regardless of the circumstance, the Sixers are learning to play without him. They've won four straight before their loss to the Wizards last night. And Joel Embiid, he's just turning it on to another level. And it's hard to say if he's right now the MVP. I definitely put him in the top two, top three. You know, put the Joker in there, put Curry in there, possibly. But just the numbers don't lie. Numbers don't lie. He's second in the league in points. He's ninth in rebounds. And look at what he's averaged over the last month. In the month of January, he's averaged 34 points a game and almost 11 rebounds per game. And another interesting tidbit, he hasn't scored fewer than 25 points since December 23rd. We're working on basically a month and a half where Embiid, has not scored lower than 25 points. That's unreal to me. Unreal. Now, for the Sixers to really get some strong consideration, I think they still got to find other offensive playmakers. You know, Tobias Harris is okay. Uh, Seth Curry's been dealing with injuries. Danny Green's been really inconsistent. But they just got to find other offensive playmakers, okay? They can't rely on Embiid to be getting 34 points 
every single night or getting 30 points or 40 points or whatever. Okay. You can't expect a double double every single night because we've learned when Joel Embiid isn't in the lineup, this Philly team struggles. They absolutely struggle. You know, we saw it in the postseason uh, and parts of the regular season last year as well. When he's not in the lineup, Philly kind of just freezes and be just like, oh, what do we do? What do we do? You know, Tobias Harris is great, but he's not a number one option in my mind. He's a great second or third option on any other team. So that's what I see with Philadelphia is once they can find a playmaker that doesn't, that isn't named Joel Embiid and they sort of take the slack off of him, then I think you can start getting serious about the Sixers team being, you know, strong title contenders. That's what I think to me. But I think the biggest shocker in the NBA right now has to be Cleveland. No one's going to argue against what the Cavaliers have done so far in the NBA. Come on. Fourth in the Eastern Conference at 31 and 20. Are you kidding me? Who would have thought this from Cleveland? <clears throat> you know, this, I just did research, you know, studying for this. This is the Cavs have not had a record above 500 without LeBron James since the 1997-98 season. And you know who was the leading scorer for that team? Sean Kemp with 18 points per game. I mean, talk about going back in the history book. And this team is kind of similar to that. You know, back then you had Sean Kemp and other guys, you know, with 18 points per game. Cleveland's doing the exact same thing here. You got six players averaging over 10 points a game, technically eight if you include Colin Sexton and Ricky Rubio, who are basically out for the year with injuries. You got Darius Garland, Jarrett Allen, Evan Mobley, Kevin Love, Laurie Marketing, and Chetty Osman. I mean, the fact that they're doing this, they got six players over 10 points a game. You also got no Sexton, no Rubio, and they're still winning. They're still winning these games. I think Cleveland and J.B. Bickerstaff, Kobe Altman, that whole organization has developed a great young core, okay, with Garland, Allen, and Mobley setting it up. And maybe if you include Colin Sexton once he gets healthy, you got four of your top five, four of your five starters basically locked up for the next few years. Unbelievable. And all these weapons are getting it done on the on both ends of the floor. You know, they're the first in opponents' points per game defensively. But then, as I said, Six guys are averaging over 10 points a game. And I do got to say, just really quickly, I'm giving credit to Kevin Love for embracing a role coming off the bench. Let's face it. This was a guy who I thought was going to be a trade piece. This team was going to be so bad that they were finally going to trade him to another guy. But Kevin Love has embraced coming off the bench, being a veteran leader. He's averaging 14 and seven. And I think he's someone that no one's talking about in Cleveland's success right now. The Cavs' success is having Kevin Love make that kind of sacrifice and come off the bench. So just quick tidbit for Love on that. And honestly, this Cavs team just reminds me of last year's Knicks. I mean, no one would have thought they would have been, you know, in the mid-pack or contending for a playoff spot. And yet here they are, you know, it's kind of a reverse where the Cavs maybe had expectations and then they sucked last year. Now the Knicks are doing the same thing. They did great this year. Now they're sucking this year. But this Cleveland team just reminds me of New York from last year because they just came out of nowhere and everyone's realizing, wow, look at all the weapons that Cleveland has. They can be great for years to come. But in terms of this season right now, I am rooting for Cleveland to at least get to the postseason because I want to see a Cleveland team without LeBron James, do better than any other team with LeBron James. And that's what might happen right now. Cleveland's got a way better record than the Lakers right now. If Cleveland had a better record, if, if it stays the way they are at season's end, that, that's kind of funny to me. That's really funny to me. Now, I, we will talk about the other teams, uh, Milwaukee and Brooklyn. I've mentioned them a lot in the past couple of weeks. I fully expect them to sort of regain it. I know the Nets have lost six straight, but they'll find a way to incorporate Kyrie. James Harden will get out of his struggles. Kevin Durant will come back from his injury. And then obviously Milwaukee, you know, they turn it on in the second half of the regular season. And they just wait for the postseason to really get things going. So I really expect those two to get back. The Celtics we'll talk about during Let's Get Local. But then the other two teams 
in the mix right now is Charlotte. I think the Hornets just have to find some consistency, some consistency to be true contenders because this is it, it's what happens when you have a relatively young team. If you got Lamelo Ball, Miles Bridges, Terry Rozier, Kelly Oubre, it kind of reminds me of the Bengals because they're young and they're full of confidence. You know, they've got some great players and they kind of know that they have some good players. And then it's just a matter of getting to success and opening everyone else's eyes. I mean, LaMelo Ball's on his way to superstardom right now, okay? He could be an all-star by day's end. But 19 and a half points, seven rebounds, set over seven and a half assists per game. He's on his way to becoming a superstar. And Miles Bridges, I think he continues to be one of the most underrated players in this league. He's got great athleticism. He's averaging 20 points a game over that mark. I think this guy, you know... Maybe he, I think he's going to get an all-star nod at least from, you know, when, when the, when all is said and done in his career. Cause I think he's being undervalued and underrated. Everyone's looking at, you know, the big star on the mellow ball, pulling up all these numbers, but all the pieces around him, you know, I give them props and I know they lost to Boston last night, but I still like the Charlotte team, the way they're young and just full of enthusiasm, similar to the Cincinnati Bengals. They know they're good. And they're just full of confidence. So we'll see if that translates to postseason success. But the last team we got to talk about is Toronto. I mean, full credit to the Raptors for avoiding relevancy. It would have been so easy just to write them off after last season saying, oh, they got nobody right now. And yet they use the fourth pick on Scotty Barnes. And look at what's happening to that team. Gary Trent, OG Ananobi, Barnes, Precious Achua. I mean, they've got some great pieces. Great pieces, but two guys I want to focus on. Fred Van Vliet, obviously. He deserves a bulk of the credit. 21 and a half points per game. This guy was undrafted, and he's leading this team back into the playoff race, back into the race. But really, I want to focus more on Pascal Siakam. I think he's rediscovering his all-star form. He's shooting over 47% from the field, 21 points a game, eight and a half rebounds. You know, I don't know if it was the fact that Toronto wasn't in Toronto. They were in Tampa last year because of the COVID restrictions in Canada. I don't know if it's that kind of comfortability for Siakam, you know, if he had, you know, injury problems last year, I don't know what it is, but I think it was just, it was just a bad year last year for uh, Siakam and to see him and that whole Raptors team turn things around is kind of surreal. And it's, it's good to see Toronto back into success because you don't want to see a team win a championship, and then all of a sudden, only a few short years later, boom, right back to the bottom. So it's a really tight Eastern Conference, and it's a good thing it's only the All-Star break because there's still plenty more basketball left to be played in this regular season. long time since we've talked about the NHL really deep but I feel like we have to now that we're going into the all-star break a lot of players are going to head to Las Vegas and play in the all-star game do a couple of events but hockey is on their break right now and it's kind of a short break it would have thought it would have been a much longer break but the fact that the NHL pulled out of the Olympics they're able to keep it going and uh this two-week break for the Olympics isn't going to happen, and the NHL is going to be able to make up some of those games in that time. But so far from what we're seeing, because now is the first official day for the All-Star break. We have the last set of games uh, and last night in the NHL. And there are a lot of surprises and disappointments I want to talk about so far in this league. I think, first off, for a surprise, I wasn't expecting the Panthers, the Florida Panthers, to be the best team in the league right now at 69 points. I think they're just a great offensive skating team. It's a powerhouse that hard, that's hard to contain. I mean, they lead the league in goals per game. They got the most shots. They got the fourth best shot percentage. I mean, they've got eight players with 10 or more, more goals right now, but obviously it's Jonathan Huberto. Obviously. I mean, he leads the league with 64 points and he's running away with the assist lead at 47 right now. He's been that leading factor right now. I mean, I expected the Panthers to be good. Don't get me wrong. I expected them to be good. Obviously, they were great last year. But 
you got a team, you got teams that are, you know, coming back like Tampa, you got the Capitals, the Penguins, the Hurricanes, just to name a few. I did not expect the Panthers to be the top team in the NHL, not, not the top of the conference, but the top in the entire NHL did not expect that at all. That's probably the biggest surprise to me. And, you know, can they sustain it? I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen, but I think they just got to find someone else other than Huberto to really take charge. Cause I mean, as I said, they do have eight players with 10 or more goals, but you can't be so reliant on Huberto to make that pass every single time, you know, teams that they're going against are going to do their homework and they're going to say, Oh, Huberto, we got to limit him. We got to double team him or whatever like that. Get physical with him. You know, you never know about that. So give credit to Florida for being the top team right now. And then probably the, the second biggest surprise to me, you know, not many surprises I'd say in the NHL, but very few. I'm very surprised to see the Rangers back in contention. The New York Rangers are back in the playoff race. You know, they missed out on it last year in the last couple of games. And I think the key has been finding the goaltender to rely on, because let's face it, how successful was this team was when Henrik Lundqvist was in between the pipes and in the crease. Okay. And kind of ironic that they're back to to where it is since he got his number retired only a few short weeks ago, but the, but New York has found a goaltender that they can rely on. And that's Igor Shesterkin. You know, he's been playing great so far. Third in the league in go- in the goals against average category, second in save percentage. He's becoming that guy that New York can turn to. And all of a sudden, look at the energy that's going on. Look at the defense that they're playing. The team is third in the league in total goals against average. So they've got a great goalie behind him. You got a bunch of other weapons like Panarin and all those guys. The Rangers are back. The New York Rangers are back. Now, are they Stanley Cup contenders? Not yet. Not yet right now. Let's see what happens, you know, post-All-Star break, if they can keep it up. But to see the Rangers back to success starts and ends with the goaltending category, at least in my eyes. Because for years and years and years, New York was all about success because they had a steady goaltender in there. And now they're back to where they were because they found their guy. They found their guy and they're back into postseason relevancy. But we'll see how far they can go. But honestly, I think there are more disappointments, at least to me, in this NHL season than there are surprises. And I think the first one obviously has to be the Oilers. I mean, the Edmonton Oilers are hurting. And I mean hurting. I mean, they're near the bottom of the Pacific Division right now. I think they're last, actually, right now. But what's interesting is that you still have your two top uh, guys going nuts. You know, they haven't dropped lost a step. Leon Dreisaitl and Connor McDavid continue to dominate. I mean, respectively, they're second and third in points. You know, they're second and 12th in goals. But can you really name me any other pieces outside of them that contribute as strong as they do? I ultimately can't see it. I can't see it. And while the offense has been great, while the offense has been great with Dreisaitl and uh, McDavid. I think the problem is defense and goaltending. That's been the problem, okay? They're in the bottom 10 in goals against average. They've got the sixth worst save percentage in the league right now. And I think part of that is just not having Mike Smith. I know Smith uh, hasn't had a great year and he's hurt right now, but with him being hurt and out of the lineup and having sort of that veteran presence as the goaltender, you're putting more pressure on Miko Koskinen, and you're also asking an inexperienced goaltender in Stuart Skinner, who's five and six right now, to get into some crucial games. You know, that's where I see the problem with this Edmonton team. Now, they are starting to turn things around. They have won five of their last six. Granted, three of them were in overtime or a shootout, you know, but they went a stretch of not winning a game from December 18th up until January 22nd. That's a whole month. And I understand some of those games were postponed because of COVID um, and not having enough pieces there. But still, to go that long without winning a game, I mean, you did force it to overtime like two or three times. But still, that's kind of sad. And 
you know, I do expect the Oilers to turn things around. You know, maybe they're not going to be at the top where they were last year. I mean, they were the top in the Canadian division right now. And then they got upset by, uh, I think it was Montreal, Winnipeg, one of those two, you know, knocked them out of the playoffs. So it's just Edmonton's just this team that has a really great regular season and then falter in the postseason. Now we're seeing what happens when the regular season doesn't go their way. It already puts them behind the eight ball. They're already behind the eight ball, and they've got a ton of ground to make up to even get a sniff of the postseason. But I feel like they're going to put more on the back of McDavid and Dreisaitl. But if you ask me, defense and goaltending has got to get that much better. Now, a team that was in the postseason last year, you know, speaking of the Canadians, another Canadian team, they go from the Stanley Cup to one of the worst teams in the league right now. They're in the bottom two right now in points, and they've just got a ton of injuries. I mean, David Savard, David Savard, Matthew Peralt, Joel Edmondson, really important guys that are out right now with injuries. But I think the biggest one has to be Carey Price. I mean, not having him in the net hurts more than anyone else. And he's been out the whole year with knee surgery. And look at what he's done, not just, you know, recently in the recent Stanley Cup run, but look at what he's been doing since he basically was debuting with Montreal in 2007. He's been the backbone, (coughs) excuse me, of that Canadians team. And to see him not in that lineup kind of just, it it makes you look around and, and scratch your heads of like, what is Montreal doing? What's going on out there? I mean, look at what he did in the Stanley Cup run. 13-9, 13 and 9, 228 goals against average, 924 save percentage. He's the guy that makes that Canadians team go. He's the guy that makes him go. And not having him in there, I don't know if it's a mental thing with Montreal, if if uh, they just can't find that one goalie, you know, because that's what's going to be part of future success. You know, who knows how many years Carey Price has left? I think he's like 34, 35 years old. So he doesn't have that many years left as a goaltender so Montreal better find a a new goalie fast otherwise they're going to go back to irrelevancy and that's the way it's going right now because they're getting a little glimpse into the future of life without Carey Price but I think you know the Oilers have been a disappointment the Canadians have been a disappointment I think no organization is disappointing more than the Coyotes their Arizona Coyotes stink And not just as a team, not their play on the ice, but as an organization, they just stink. They're absolutely awful. They're, I think, the worst team in the NHL right now. But I'm not even going to talk about, like, what's going on on the ice. Let's talk about off the ice, what's been going on. I mean, they're making late payments on their arena in Arizona. You know, they're being threatened, you know, to be basically forced out of that stadium. And now there's talks about possibly go into Arizona state and play in their 5,000 seat arena, not, not 50,000, not 15,000, 5,000. Okay. Why are you doing that? Why just make the payments, make the payments. Okay. Because right now the city of Glendale or everyone in Arizona, Phoenix, wherever you are, they're saying we're done with this hockey team. Start doing things much better. And I don't think it's, you know, on the ice. That's the problem. That's the problem. It's just been as an organization, just make the payments and find a better arena. Okay. Don't go to a college campus and play a national hockey game in a college arena. Don't do that. You do not do that as an organization. Absolutely not. So right now that's my winner for the biggest disappointment in the NHL is the Arizona Coyotes for the way they have managed to ultimately suck the life out of the state of Arizona when it comes to hockey. But the good news is that it's only the all-star break and there's still plenty of hockey to be played. And ultimately we'll find out who the true contenders for the Stanley cup are.
it is once again time to do our usual let's get local segment of the week. And if you haven't noticed, repping the Tom Brady jersey from the recent news, of course, everyone in New England is talking about what a career Tom Brady has had. He's saying so long to the NFL. Now, this story was absolutely fun, really funny to me. It was on Saturday that Adam Schefter, Jeff Darlington said, Tom Brady's going to retire. Now, then everyone was saying, hold on, hold on just yet. You know, not yet, not yet. And then it was, I think it was Tuesday that the official news came out and he said it from himself that he is retiring. And honestly, not really shocked about, you know, what I've seen uh, and what I've heard from Brady. You know, he's talking about family being the most important thing, being there for his kids. Um, So I kind of expected this. And Saturday was kind of, you know, I expected a retirement. Uh, sort of thing and it was just kind of funny to say whoa 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 not yet and I just think it was you know Tom Brady in his camp um, basically you know they were kind of just upset that the media broke the news instead of Tom Brady himself because I think what you're seeing with like all the videos and the uh, Twitter letter you know stuff like that I think he wanted to make that sort of formal announcement you know on the day he was going to say he was retired and you know his camp was just kind of upset that uh, the media got got it out there before Uh, he could. So, I mean, that's, we're talking about that retirement and let's just talk about the incredible career. Cause obviously the majority of it was spent right here in new England with the Patriots. And honestly, you know, I was too young to really remember, you know, those first three super bowls. I can tell you it was 2006 was when I really started paying attention to football and got invested into it, especially with Tom Brady. I vividly remember uh, being at a friend's watching that game against the Chargers where they knocked him off in San Diego, 14 to two. And then I was over that same friend's house for that championship game against the Colts where they were up 21 to three. And then I eventually lost 38, 34. I was very, very upset on that, but I was even more upset the year after with the undefeated season losing in the Super Bowl. Um, but I just got to tell you in terms of like a legacy standpoint, at least in my eyes, this is sort of what I see. I see um, those first three Super Bowls, well, first off, the story is unreal. I mean, being the 199th pick to then going to starting a Super Bowl, winning the Super Bowl, taking advantage over that unfortunate injury with Drew Bledsoe, and Bill Belichick just having the confidence saying, we're going to go with Tom instead of Drew, even though Tom was hurt in that AFC championship against Pittsburgh, and Drew Bledsoe won that game. So that was a, a gutsy call by uh, Bill Belichick, which turned out to be the right call. And, you know, you go back to that Super Bowl against the Rams in 2001, John Madden saying they should have just kneeled on it, you know, play for overtime. And, you know, Tom leading his team down the field, letting Vinatieri kick that field goal. You know, that was kind of a one-time thing. You thought, okay, Tom is, is kind of good. He's kind of good. Then you go to the second Super Bowl against Carolina. The exact same thing. Marching his team down the field, kicking the field goal by Vinatieri, you get your second Super Bowl. And you're thinking, okay, maybe he's one of the best in recent time. You go the following year, uh, they win against Philly, 24-21. Then you're thinking, okay, now it's time to start thinking about all time because not many guys have three. Not many guys have three. And then just for years and years, it was like a first and a second half kind of thing. I don't know what it was, but... The first half of his career was great, but then those next 11 years where it was just always so close and the undefeated season with Randy Moss, you know, throwing the 50 touchdowns, that to me is what was the turning point into the GOAT consideration in terms of greatest of all time. You know, was he the greatest of all time at that moment? No, you could probably still give it to Joe Montana or to John Elway or some of those guys. But you had to at least throw Brady's name in the consideration. You know, you know, you could probably say he was like last on a very short list right now. And then the undefeated season happens. They lose, but then they come back. They win the Seattle Super Bowl. Now the GOAT conversation is becoming a little more vivid. They're saying, okay, maybe Tom is right there. But, it, you know, people were still leaning towards Joe Montana. And then the fifth Super Bowl, which I think might be Brady's greatest accomplishment. Coming back from 28 to three against Atlanta, winning that game, getting his fifth Super Bowl, he officially became the GOAT. Officially the GOAT after that Super Bowl win. <coughs> Excuse me. 
And then just getting the sixth and the seventh was just the, the cherry on the top, the icing on the cake. Now, would I have loved to see him finish out his whole career in New England? Of course, but that's not going to happen. That doesn't happen all the time. You look at Peyton Manning, he finished with Denver. Joe Montana finished with Kansas City. You know, all these guys went to different teams. And, you know, Tom Brady is the best. He's the best football player of all time. And that's just not my bias. That's, you know, a true fact and a statement that I believe. Now, in terms of the actual retirement, not acknowledging the Patriots is somewhat troublesome to me. You know, I, I feel like Tom is, is much smarter than that. You know, there's no way he would have not mentioned a team in an organization that he spent 20 years with and just not acknowledge them at all. I mean, you look at the Instagram post that he had, it was, you know, 1500 words, like seven different paragraphs and no mention of um, the Patriots, of Robert Kraft, of Bill Belichick, of the fans. You know, I don't know if he was thinking like, you know, the letter where he said so long to New England when he left for Tampa in 2020 was enough, but I feel like I'm holding out hope that there is more coming. That's the thing. And I'm, am I a little bitter? Just a little bit, but I'm not totally holding a grudge because I feel like something bigger is coming, whether that's, you know, a surprise announcement of his number being retired or he's getting early entry into the Pats Hall of Fame. I don't know what it is, but I think there's more coming because I don't think he would have done that intentionally because look at, look at what he's done. You know, he's retweeted, thanking uh robert Kraft for that uh that letter that he put out last night he thanked bill belichick you know he's thanked all these guys so there's more i feel like there's just going to be one big announcement coming in and i don't know if it's going to be like he'll he'll resign one day as a patriot retire officially as a patriot i don't know what it's going to be but i feel like there's more coming and i'm going to hold out hope that there is more coming because i don't think tom would do that there's no way he would do that i mean look at what when he came back to new england this past year i mean the fans loved him until he became a competitor then he was like okay it's patriots time i don't know what it is but i just salute for right now i salute tom brady on the greatest career of any football player of all time so tom brady uh you are my childhood essentially uh, I grew up on you and the NFL is not going to be the same without you. So thank you for all the memories, not just in the NFL, but in new England, Tom, hope you have an incredible retirement with Giselle and your kids, but that's off the field. Let's talk about on the field, specifically on the ice and talk about the Boston Bruins heading into their all-star break. Honestly, I think the holiday break, you know, that, uh, from like Christmas to new year's with the COVID situation, that was the best thing that has ever happened to this team. They're right back into contention. They came back with changes and a fire underneath them, and they are 12-4-1 since that COVID break. They're 12-4-1 so far in 2022. But the problem I still see with this team, I talked about it last week that defensively, you know, they got to work on their depth. But I just think all in all, they got to fix those first period woes, Okay. When you look at those uh, those four wins and that one overtime loss, okay, they gave up 11 first-period goals, 11. So we're learning for this Bruins team that if they're not behind in, in a huge hole, then you give them time to come back. But I think you have to establish yourself early, especially if you're this Bruins team. To You, know, you don't want to wait until the second and third period when it's too little too late in a game against like Carolina where you're giving up five first period goals, you don't want to do that. So you got to improve what, what you do when you first come out onto the ice. I don't know if it's, you know, using that perfection line just for a little bit or giving more ice time to the second and third lines rather than, you know, throwing some fourth lines in there. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is, but first period woes are going to be something that Bruce Cassidy and this team, is going to look back on. But even still, with those uh, struggles, they're still right back into contention. You know, they're multiple points. They're sitting in that last wild card spot, but they're like, you know, nine points clear of Detroit right now. So there's still no time to panic on that just yet. But also this all-star break gives ample time for Tuca to fully recover. Now, he hasn't played in the last couple of games. You know, they said it's a lower body injury, but 
You're talking about a guy who's coming off of hip surgery. And, you know, like I said, he just hasn't looked like himself. You know, give him this time to recover. Hopefully he comes back fully healthy. And if not, there's no need to rush. Linus Allmark is playing good. Jeremy Swayman's playing good. So I don't think there's no need to panic if you're a Bruins fan just yet about this team. Yes, you hope they're a little bit better, but, you know, they're 12-4-1 since a COVID break, okay? They made the changes. They put Pasternak on that second line, and look at what's happened. Look at what has happened to them. You know, they are catching fire, and hopefully their team can be fully healthy once they come back from the All-Star break in Vegas. But another team that's catching fire are the Celtics. They are catching fire recently since entering the month of February. I mean, they've won three straight games, five of the last six, and a nice gritty win against Charlotte last night. And really what I'm seeing is this rotation is starting to solidify and the defense is getting better. I mean, you look at guys like Josh Richardson getting 23 points off the bench against Charlotte, but more so I want to talk Marcus Smart. I mean, since he's been considered in trade talks and since he's come back from COVID, he's elevated his game. Look at what's happened these last six games. He's averaging almost seven assists per game. It was almost like his name being floated in trade talks is saying, said to himself, wait, 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 wait. I know I'm a better player than this. I can be a facilitator. I can be the point guard for the Boston Celtics. And sure enough, he's playing up to that level. He's getting better at facilitating. He's not taking stupid shots. You know, he's taking shots off of ball movement rather than just playing isolation, isolation ball and shoot from three. So this team to me is finally coming around. I love those two. I love the starting lineup. Both Williams are great. Um, just I'm, I'm falling in love with this team a little bit and I don't want to get, you know, too cocky too yet. I understand there are a couple games over 500 right now, but it just takes another stretch for them to come right back down to earth. And honestly, what I'm talking about with parody in that East uh, in an earlier segment, I think that's the, were best benefit for them. They're only five and a half games back of top seed Chicago. You know, this is perfect for the Celtics to try and get back and get to those realistic expectations, which I talked about being a fifth or a sixth seed and avoid the play. in That's the key is avoid the play. in And that might have to, that might have to be avoided with a couple of trade talks. It might have to, they might have to make some trades. And to me, like I said last week, Dennis Schroeder, Ennis Freedom, and maybe I'll even float in Al Horford just really slightly, maybe not entirely just because of his contract, but those are some names to float around. And ultimately, you're just looking for guys to complement Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. I mean, look at what happened last night. They struggled from the floor, and you saw Smart being a great facilitator, and he almost put up 20 points. You had Richardson score 23 off the bench, so you know those guys are helping you out but you're just looking for more guys to complement those two guys and take the scoring load off of Tatum and Brown. Cause you don't want them scoring 40 points every single night. Like you saw against the uh, game in Sacramento and uh, options like that. But it's, you're looking for guys that can play to what we saw last night against Charlotte is when Tatum and Brown are struggling, you get other guys that you can rely on. And we're seeing that with Richardson we're seeing that with Smart. We're even seeing that from Grant Williams from time to time. So that's ultimately what it is that the Celtics have got to be looking for. And I think they are going to be active in this trade market. I really do. Because if this team struggles anymore, you got to think that either Brown or Tatum are going to say, you know what, this just isn't working. It's time to move on. So if you're Brad Stevens, anyone in that Celtics organization, you are complimenting your two superstars to keep them on your team as long as as you can. But the good news is with the month of February, with all the action going on in Boston, hopefully the fire that these teams have caught will start to melt some of the massive snow amounts that we've been recently getting. as we always do we look at our lol moment of the week and this one's kind of like a haha in your face kind of thing and it's kind of a long story so i don't want to waste any time setting it up so this week's lol 
Moment of the week goes to Brian Kelly, the head coach of LSU football. And let's let's just start like this. Since Brian Kelly has gotten that job at LSU, he's kind of been a little bit of a joke right now. You know, developing a Southern accent saying, oh, I love LSU, trying to get himself uh, with the LSU community and stuff like that. I, I don't like it. I don't really like it. Just be yourself and sort of be yourself. Um, you know, not, not pretend to be someone you're not. But what puts him into this moment? Well, let me just explain. Tight end recruit Danny Lewis, who's been regarded as one of the top tight ends uh, in the country. It was decision day, and, but it's before decision, decision day. That is the story. Danny Lewis made a TikTok with Brian Kelly while he was in his uh, recruitment trip at LSU. And if you look at that video, there's like a rotating camera and, you know, he's posing while Brian Kelly is like sort of doing a dance around him. And that video got over 8 million views on TikTok. Okay. 8 million views. So that, that thing blew up. But what does Danny Lewis decide to do on decision day just yesterday? He had two choices and he chose Alabama. Over LSU, Danny Lewis decides to go roll tide instead of LSU, despite making that video with Brian Kelly. And if you're Brian Kelly, you got to look in the mirror and say, what the heck? Or maybe he'd probably be like, what the heck did I do? (laughs) Using that fake Southern accent or something like that. But Lewis with an ultimate slap in the face, spit in the face, turn turn your back, turn a blind eye, and he decides to go to LSU's biggest rival in Alabama instead of the guy that he made the TikTok with. And what's gotten funnier is all of these trolls. He's been getting trolled by so many people and even some other SEC coaches. I mean, Lane Kiffin on Twitter saying like, did you lose a bet or something? And even Nick Saban got in on the fun talking at his press conference saying, you know, sometimes I like to dance. I like to dance too. And it's just everyone kind of looking at Brian Kelly and just being like, you know, this is what you signed up for. You're here in the SEC. This ain't Notre Dame anymore. And the expectations for LSU have got to be probably about up here right now. And so far, Brian Kelly is not making any friends or any fans outside of LSU. I mean, maybe I got to talk to an LSU fan, someone who follows LSU football. But at least if it was me, I would not be a big fan of Brian Kelly you know, doing all this ridiculous stuff, trying to get in with the folks of Louisiana, and now he's losing recruits. You know, I think there was a point he was going to get Caleb Williams possibly, but instead of return to Oklahoma or going to LSU, he goes to USC. I don't know what it is about Brian Kelly, if it's, you know, what he's talked about, you know, the situation at Notre Dame when he told his players in 11 minutes he was going to be gone or if he developed that faith Southern accent, but something about him has just turned him off to a lot of college football fans. And he's turned himself kind of into a little bit of an enemy. And I don't know if Kelly wanted that, but it is kind of funny to see, you know, him do his best to uh, live it up to these recruits, you know, even making the TikToks as the, um, you know, maybe as these old people say, I mean, I'm technically kind of old, but I have TikTok, but seeing all these old people saying like, Ooh, let me get in with the young kids and do a little TikTok dance and stuff like that. And you see him kind of doing the, the old school disco fingers in the eye. I don't know what that move is called, but, um, to see him, you know, pull out all these stops just to get these players, you know, I don't know if it's that great of a sign for him to make out or, uh, pull out all these stops just to get all these recruits, you know, just, Just show your accolades. Show what you've done at Notre Dame. You've been to the college football playoff. You've been to the national championship. Credit, you haven't won anything, but that's all you got to do. You know, he's just got to settle down and not try and let LSU get into his head because that's what I think is going on. You know, LSU and that whole community is getting into his head and he's got to pull out all the stops to show I'm a coach in the SEC that can help you in your career. So, I don't know what it is, but Brian Kelly for going the extra mile and having a recruit that got famous off of TikTok because of you, he decides to go to your rival school 
you land yourself into this week's LOL moment of the week. So that wraps it up for this edition of Let Me Speak. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in wherever you're getting your podcast, watching us on YouTube, listening to us, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else. Make sure you follow our other pages on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. All you got to do is search Let Me Speak Podcast. And remember, as always, if you got to get a point, you got to get across. Just let the whole world know. Shut up and let me speak.